Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of abuse, animal cruelty, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Molly groaned as she woke up to the sounds of shouting and a car door slamming from next door. She didn't need to look at the clock to know that it was 3.15 a.m. Her new neighbors had been making a ruckus every night this week, always at the same time. But this time was the straw that broke the camel's back. Molly slipped on her dressing gown. Enough was enough. She was going to give that family a piece of her mind. She hurried downstairs and stepped out of her front door, just in time to see their station wagon disappearing into the night. They'd left in such a rush that they hadn't even bothered to close the screen door. It was left open, crashing against the side of the house. This was beyond inconsiderate. That racket would wake up half the neighborhood. Molly made her way next door and caught the swinging screen door. Somewhere inside, a dog was barking its head off. She shook her head. Unbelievable. They left their dog at home with the door open. Some people were just plain irresponsible. Molly stepped into the kitchen and saw a dark shape dangling from a curtain rod in the next room. That must be what the dog was barking at. She'd have to take it down if she wanted the collie to shut up. Molly crossed into the next room. The dog was louder than ever, but she still couldn't see him. The thing in the window continued to sway back and forth. She heard footsteps on the stairs above her, and her pulse quickened. A red light descended the stairs, illuminating the room around her and the object hanging from the curtain rod. Molly screamed in horrified disgust. Hanging by its neck in the window was the bloated, putrid corpse of a dog. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, we have the final episode of our four-part series, Behind the Conjuring, where we tell the true stories behind the terrifying films of the Conjuring franchise. We've discussed real-life cases investigated by famed paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren, the pair who inspired the Conjuring films, and explored the locations where these cases took place. These hauntings span the globe, from Rhode Island to London. But today, we're traveling back to the American Northeast for our last and perhaps most notorious haunted place of the series. Join me on a supernatural journey to Amityville, New York, to learn about the haunting featured in the opening scenes of The Conjuring 2. The Amityville Horror House has inspired countless books and movies. While some have called it a hoax, there's no question that the murders at the center were all too real. Coming up, we'll cross the threshold into the Amityville Horror House.
At the center of the Amityville horror is the destruction of two families, one torn apart by an act of unfathomable evil, and the other driven into hiding by a series of terrifying and inexplicable events. What connects them is the home they both lived in, one for nine years and the other for a mere 28 days. 112 Ocean Avenue was a dark blue Dutch colonial with a red brick chimney. Perhaps its most distinctive feature was a pair of unique quarter-circle windows that looked out from the third floor like a pair of eyes. It had a fountain, a pool, and a little sign out front that read, High Hopes. But in November of 1974, those hopes were corrupted by profound violence. That year, the home's residents were slaughtered by their own kin. It was a tragic event that made the house infamous for the horrors that took place there, but it didn't keep it from selling. The new owners wanted to make the home look unrecognizable from the one in the crime scene photos. They started their renovation by painting over the blue-black exterior. They tore down the fountain, filled in the pool, and even remodeled those distinctive windows on the side of the house. They added a solarium and got rid of the infamous red room in a basement remodel. Finally, they changed the address in the hopes that putting a different number on the mailbox might erase its terrible past. By all appearances, 112 Ocean Avenue had ceased to exist. But though the house may have looked different, its bones were the same. After the fall of 1974, violence and aggression seeped into them like a toxic chemical. And the new owners would learn that there are some things that can't be covered with a fresh coat of paint. Jax Atkins hovered at the back of the crowd. He stood on tiptoe and craned his neck, but he couldn't see anything, much less the house's front door. Dick Bloom from the National Enquirer was standing a few feet away. At 6'4", he loomed over the throngs of reporters and curious neighbors. From up there, he could snap as many photos of the murder house as he wanted. Jax hated being short. Women didn't want to date him, men didn't respect him, and if he wanted to get a good photo, he had to get creative. Jack skirted the perimeter of the crowd until he spotted a hedge that ran between 112 Ocean Avenue and the home next to it. He waited until no one was watching, then jumped behind it. This was just what he needed. The shrubs hid him from onlookers, and he had a view of the whole backside of the house. He snickered to himself. Now, if you could just get a ghost to appear in the window, he'd have everything he needed. Jax was a skeptic when it came to the supernatural, but even he had to admit there was something creepy about the place. He supposed it could have been the windows on the side that looked like eyes. More likely, it was because he knew what had happened there. His gaze drifted downward, and his heart leapt. One of the basement windows was open. This was perfect. Dick Bloom might get a few shots at the front, but he wasn't man enough to break in. Jax would be the only reporter in town with pictures of the interior. Maybe he could even find the infamous Red Room. Jax crept toward the window. Then, when he was sure the coast was clear, he dangled his legs through the opening and dropped down into the house. He was standing in a cluttered basement. At the other end of the space, there was an old metal bookshelf, and beyond that, a doorway leading into a small crawl space with red walls. Bingo. 
Jack started picking his way through the piles of junk. He was almost disappointed. The Red Room didn't look like a gateway to hell. Because, Jack's reasoned, it wasn't. If the family was really living in a haunted house, shouldn't they have called a priest or a psychic instead of a press conference? He'd bet his money it was all a hoax. Maybe they thought they could get some cash out of it. He would have done the same thing if he'd owned an infamous murder house. Jacks ducked into the crawl space. There wasn't much there, just a small shelf with a dirty magazine, a cardboard box, and an old notebook. Jacks took the notebook back to the basement and held it up to the light. It appeared to be some kind of journal. He did his best to read the messy handwriting, but he could only make out one phrase. It was written in big block letters at the bottom of the last page. They are going to die. Jax dropped the book. The hair in the back of his neck stood on end. He closed his eyes and clenched his teeth. This was ridiculous. He was acting like a little girl. Real men weren't afraid of ghosts or haunted houses or even murderers. He took a deep breath and bent down to pick up the notebook. As he reached for it, a fly landed on the cover. It was joined by another. Then two more. A fly then landed on Jax's hand. He smacked it, and a terrible stench filled the air. His lip curled in disgust as a black, tar-like substance leaked from the fly's crushed corpse. It smelled like rot and decay. Two more flies landed on his hand. Jax glanced back at the book and shrieked. It was teeming with flies. They were coming from the Red Room swarming up walls and crawling over the floor. The bugs started to land on his head. They crawled into his nostrils and buried themselves in his hair. Jack screamed and a fly flew into his mouth. He tried to swap them away, but there were too many. Then, all at once, they left his body and swarmed together into a teeming black mass. They were forming a shape, a silhouette of a man. Jack stood frozen his heart pounding as features began to emerge. A nose, two eyes, and a mouth. Jax felt like he couldn't breathe. Then the figure's lips opened in a silent scream. Flies streamed from its mouth like a cloud of smoke. A deep, guttural voice came from within the red room. It told him to get out. Jax ran for the window. He didn't need to be told twice. On February 13, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz called a press conference in the office of a Long Island lawyer. They claimed they wanted to address rumors about why they had suddenly left 112 Ocean Avenue after living there for just under a month. The Lutzes told reporters that their new house, which had been the site of six murders a year earlier, was haunted. But that day, the Lutzes revealed only a few tantalizing details of their story. All they said to the assembled journalists was, one, they'd been driven from their home with only the clothes on their back. Two, they believed there was a very powerful force at work. And three, they wouldn't spend another night in that house if you paid them. It wasn't until a year later, in March of 1976, that Ed and Lorraine Warren were brought to the home by a news crew investigating the alleged haunting. When they left, Lorraine was so disturbed that, much like the Lutzes, 
she refused to go back to continue the investigation. She said of the experience, Amityville was horrible, honey. It was absolutely horrible. It followed us right straight across the country. I don't even like to talk about it. I will never go in the Amityville house ever again. You don't know how long my career is. That's the only one. Coming up, the brutal murders at the heart of the Amityville haunting. Now back to the story. In June of 1965, Ronald Big Ronnie DeFeo bought a five-bedroom house in the affluent Long Island village of Amityville. The new home was a symbol of success for Big Ronnie. After years of living in a cramped Brooklyn apartment, he'd finally saved enough money to buy the home he'd always wanted. He installed a fountain in the yard and had portraits of his family hung above the staircase. He wanted people to know that he was doing well, that his wife was beautiful, and that his five children were smart. They had all lived up to his high expectations. They were going to be a perfect family living in a perfect home. And for a while, it looked like they were, until everything fell apart. Detective Steve Parker flipped up the collar of his trench coat and stepped over the line of police tape. His partner, Mike, was smoking a cigarette in the front doorway. Steve approached and asked what they had. Mike took a long drag and said it was a multiple homicide. No signs of forced entry and nothing stolen. He gestured toward a young man at the other end of the yard. He said the eldest son had come home around 10 and found the parents. He went to a local bar for help, and a few guys accompanied him back to the house. That was when he found the others. Steve let out a deep sigh and said they should probably get in there. Mike stubbed out his cigarette and gestured for Steve to go ahead. Steve paused at the threshold. He'd always had a hard time keeping it together at murder scenes. The guys liked to make fun of him. They'd call him Officer Sensitive or Detective Cream Puff. Gradually, he was learning how to tamp down his emotions. But he had a feeling this one was going to test his resolve. Steve squared his shoulders and entered the house. As soon as he stepped inside, he was met with a smell of rot and decay. He asked how long the bodies had been in there. Mike shrugged and said it couldn't have been more than a few hours. The son claimed that the house just smelled that way sometimes. Maybe a leaky sewer line. Of course, it could also be the dog. Steve frowned and asked what he was talking about. Mike gestured to a dark shape swaying in the window. For a moment, Steve couldn't tell what it was. Then he made out the outline of a tail. Then, the body of a medium-sized dog hanging by its neck from the curtain rod. Steve suppressed a gag. Mike chuckled darkly and started up the stairs. The stairwell was lined with a row of portraits. Here were the family's two young sons posing triumphantly over a deer carcass, their dark-haired daughters posing on a settee, the mother clutching a string of pearls. Beyond her was the largest portrait, positioned at the top of the stairs. It was of the young man who had been standing outside, the eldest son. And standing over him in the portrait was a stocky man 
with a thick beard and heavy eyebrows. Steve shivered and turned away. It was strange. Usually crime scenes were loud, but this house was oddly silent, like it was soundproofed or underwater. Steve knew Mike was only a few feet away in one of the bedrooms, but he couldn't shake the sudden feeling that he was completely alone. He reached the landing on the second floor and pushed on one of the doors lining the hallway. It swung open into a dark bedroom. Steve flicked on the lights. The dull yellow glow illuminated rumple-orange tartan bedspreads and walls papered with a pattern of blue boats. Steve recognized the boys from the portrait at the bottom of the stairs. They could have been sleeping if it weren't for the red-brown bloodstains spread over their pajamas. Steve's stomach churned. He knew it was a multiple homicide, but Mike hadn't warned him that some of the victims were just kids. He was standing frozen in the doorway when Mike appeared in the hall and told him to get himself together. They had things to do. Steve took a deep breath and followed Mike into the next room. Steve wanted to shut off his emotions as he took photographs, dusted for fingerprints, and examined the bodies for blood pooling. He tried to think of the corpses as things instead of people. Mike had always been good at that. The man was the definition of stoic. He could take in the horrors of the world without blinking an eye. Steve knew he could never be like Mike. It was hours before they were able to go back to the station, but even then, their night wasn't over. The eldest son was waiting for them. They would need to take down his story before they could head home. Mike sat down across from the rumpled-looking kid and got straight to the point. Did he know of anyone who might want to hurt his family? The kid nodded and said his father had got mixed up in some shady stuff. He thought he might owe money to the mob. Mike started asking follow-up questions, but Steve wasn't listening. He'd been distracted by a look that had flitted across the kid's face when he mentioned his father. It was brief, but distinct. A slight sneer of contempt. Steve interrupted Mike's questioning to ask the kid about his father. The young man shrugged. He said there wasn't much more to say. Steve nodded thoughtfully and asked if he was a good father. Did he spend time with them? The kid looked at the floor. Of course his dad loved them, he said. Sometimes he would give his boys a good spanking, but that was his right as a father, his right as a man. He provided for his family, and he disciplined them when they stepped out of line. It was for their own good, to develop character. Mike sighed in irritation and resumed his line of questioning. They didn't get much from the rest of the interview. After a few hours, they let the kid go. Once he was gone, Mike turned to Steve and asked what he thought. Steve frowned. Something was troubling him. He couldn't stop thinking about the way the kid had said that his father wanted them to have good character. He made it sound like a bad thing. Mike knew what Steve was getting at. He said there was no way that a boy like that could murder his own family members and hang his dog. When Steve got home, he didn't even try to sleep. Instead, he watched TV until the test pattern came on. Then he shut off the set and sat in his armchair, staring out the window. 
he couldn't stop thinking about that house. Mike was convinced the murder was connected to the father's mob dealings, but Steve wasn't so sure. He desperately wanted to believe that Mike was right, that a suburban boy barely out of school couldn't be capable of a crime like that. But there was something about the expression on the kid's face. It made him think something very bad had been going on in that family. What he really needed was to go back to the crime scene. Maybe there was some piece of evidence they had missed, something that would prove him wrong. He glanced up at the clock. It was 4.30 a.m. The sun would be up in a few hours anyway. Steve shrugged on his coat and headed to his car. It was raining lightly as he made his way up to the front walk. The dark windows of the house loomed over him like the shiny black eyes of a spider. The front door creaked as it swung open. There was that smell again, the stink of death. Steve stepped inside. A cold wind rushed through the entryway, slamming the door shut behind him. Steve froze for a moment. He reminded himself to breathe, then clicked on the light switch in the entryway. But nothing happened. He frowned. Maybe the power had been shut off. Steve looked around for the electrical panel when he heard something above him. Little feet scurrying down the hall. He called out, but there was no response. Steve aimed his flashlight at the stairs, but there was nothing there. For a moment, he wondered if he'd imagined it. Then it came again. This time, light footsteps heading up the steps. Steve's hand trembled. He took a deep breath, told himself to man up, and started up the staircase. As he reached the third floor, he noticed another sound. Steve froze. Someone was crying. It was coming from the eldest son's room. He approached the door and pushed it open. A narrow beam of moonlight illuminated a little boy huddled in the corner. Alarmed, Steve took a step toward him. He couldn't understand how the kid had gotten in there. The house had been locked up for hours. He was going to have to deal with this swiftly. As he approached, Steve could hear the boy mumbling something over and over. He was scratching at the wall, clawing at a crack near the baseboard. Steve's steely resolve deteriorated. He couldn't shove his emotions down anymore. His heart ached for this poor kid. He was alone and terrified in this dark house. And Steve had to admit, so was he. Steve knelt down next to him. He gently asked his name. When the boy turned toward him, Steve's blood went cold. He recognized that face. He'd seen it in the painting at the bottom of the stairwell. The boy put his hand to his stomach. Then he held it up and watched a drop of blood fall from his finger. Suddenly, Steve understood what he'd been murmuring. He was asking, what happened? What did you do? Steve's heart raced. He pushed on the crack that the boy had been clawing at. The wall sprang back and a panel came away. Steve pulled it out and reached inside. His fingers closed around a cardboard box. Suddenly, the lights came on. The boy disappeared, and an older voice asked what he was doing. 
Steve turned to see the oldest son standing in the doorway. His pulse quickened and his throat went dry. There was something about the kid that didn't look right. His eyes were black and dead, and he stood eerily still, almost like he was more waxwork than human. Steve asked why he was here. The kid replied that he'd just come to get some of his things. Steve looked down at his hand and felt a chill course through his body. He was holding a box of bullets. Steve stood up and pulled out his handcuffs. He told the kid to turn around. He was under arrest. At 3.15 a.m. on November 13, 1974, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. left his bedroom with a high-powered rifle and murdered every member of his immediate family. Among the slain were his mother and father, his 18-year-old sister Dawn, his 13-year-old sister Allison, and his two younger brothers, 11-year-old Mark and 9-year-old John. After committing the murders, Butch bathed, dressed, and went to work like nothing had happened. Butch would later claim that he had found his family murdered after coming home at around 6 p.m. that evening. But police were immediately skeptical, and Butch's alibi quickly fell apart. In the coming weeks, he changed his story repeatedly. After police pointed out that the family had been murdered while sleeping, Butch said the hitman had killed them in front of him. Later, he claimed that his sister Dawn was the one who carried out the murders, and he had killed her in retaliation. Ultimately, he admitted to the killings, but said he'd been spurred on by vivid hallucinations of a sinister figure in a black hood. Today, Butch's motives are still unclear. The closest he ever came to revealing them was one unintentionally honest comment that he'd let slip in the police station. He told police that it all started so fast, and once he started, he just couldn't stop. Coming up, a new family moves into the house, only to find that some of its previous residents haven't left. Now back to the story. In September of 1975, less than a year after the DeFeo family's murder, 112 Ocean Avenue was sold to its new owners, George and Kathy Lutz. The couple was newly married at the time. George was an ex-Marine and Kathy, the mother of three children from a previous marriage. The newlyweds were looking for a home to accommodate their growing family. And the house in Amityville seemed like the perfect fit. It had plenty of room for the kids, a boathouse for their cruiser, and best of all, the price had been drastically reduced. The Lutzes knew about the murders, but the deal was too good to pass up. Besides, they didn't believe in ghosts. Harold Anders gave his three sons a serious look. He told them he wanted a good, clean race. The fastest man inside the new house got his pick of bedroom, but only if he won it fairly. Jerry, Glenn, and Henry nodded eagerly. Harold then brought his fingers to his lips and whistled. The boys took off pushing and shoving each other on the way into the new house. Penny, the border collie, ran after them, yelping and wagging her tail. Marilyn shouted that there was no need for roughhousing. Harold chuckled and told her not to worry. Boys will be boys. Plus, he let them know that the master bedroom wasn't up for grabs. 
Marilyn raised an eyebrow. She took off running, yelling over her shoulder that she was going to claim the best side of the bed for herself. Harold ran after her. They arrived at the bedroom, panting and laughing. Marilyn gave Harold a kiss on the lips and playfully pushed him onto the bed. Harold felt a sudden stabbing pain. A sharp bed spring was sticking right into his back. He bolted upright and screamed at Marilyn, calling her a stupid cow. His hand flew to his mouth. He started to apologize. He didn't mean that. It was just a reaction. Marilyn laughed uncomfortably and said she knew that. She left the room, saying she'd better get going on dinner anyway. Harold let out a deep sigh. He must be tired. Moving had been exhausting, and it was awfully stuffy in here. Maybe the heat was getting to him. Harold opened the window for some fresh air and gazed out at the sparkling river. He was grumpy today, but he'd feel better tomorrow. After all, he had a beautiful wife, three great sons, and an incredible house that he'd gotten for a steal. He was a lucky man. Harold did not feel better the next day, or the day after that. He kept telling himself that this was just a phase. But after a few weeks, the intrusive negative thoughts had become almost constant. He'd think his sons were weak, and his wife was lazy and ugly. The words in his brain felt like they belonged to someone else, an outsider filling his mind with their own stream of rage and vitriol. Every so often, his anger spilled out into words. He called his sons worthless, and his wife a whore. He'd never even used a word like that before. Harold started to wonder if there was something wrong with him, some kind of hormone imbalance, or even a brain tumor. He was considering seeking medical help. Then, he discovered the red room, and intrusive thoughts became the least of his worries. Harold and Marilyn were cleaning out the basement. They'd been putting it off for weeks, but it was time to bite the bullet. They started the project together, but around noon, Marilyn excused herself to go fix lunch. Harold suppressed the urge to call her lazy and tell her she was fat enough already. It had become difficult to keep thoughts to himself lately. He felt like whatever was going on was coming to a head. He'd been more volatile than ever. He had trouble sleeping, and he kept waking up in the middle of the night, always at the same time, 3.15 a.m. Usually, he went up to the guest room on the third floor. He didn't know why he liked it up there. For some reason, it was just the only place in the house where he felt right. He'd sit in an old rocking chair and stare out the window. Every so often, he would look down and see that he was doing something with his hands. At first, he wasn't sure what it was. Then, one day, he came across a stack of old hunting magazines and realized what he'd been doing up in the attic room. He had been cleaning an invisible rifle. After Marilyn left, Harold started tidying an old bookshelf. He paused as he swept an armful of crooked nails into a trash bin. He caught sight of something peculiar, a crack in the drywall behind the bookshelf. Only it seemed too neat to be a crack. It was more like the edge of something. Curious, Harold grasped the bookshelf and slid it to the side. Behind it was a doorway. Harold frowned. 
the blueprints hadn't shown any closets in the basement. He pulled the door open, revealing a small room, painted an alarming shade of red. Penny had been curled up peacefully by the stairs, but as soon as he got the door open, she started barking ferociously. Harold told her to shush. She sank down to her haunches and continued to growl quietly. Harold peered into the room and was hit with a powerful smell. The place stank of human excrement. There was almost nothing in there, just four walls and a shelf. Marilyn shouted from upstairs, lunch was ready. Harold backed out of the room. He tried to close the door, but it wouldn't budge. It felt like it had been nailed down. He gave one last heave and then gave up. He would come back later. Harold made his way out of the basement, but when he reached the foot of the stairs, he paused. The afternoon sun made it look like the small room was glowing with an eerie red light. His stomach tightened. He had a sudden feeling that he shouldn't let the door stay open, like there was something toxic in there and he needed to seal it up. Harold shook his head. He turned away and headed upstairs. Harold wrinkled his nose as he stepped into the kitchen. He asked Marilyn how long it had been since she'd taken out the trash. She told him she had just done it yesterday. Harold's face flushed with rage. She was lying. If she had taken out the trash yesterday, then why did the place smell like a dump truck? He walked over to the window and took a deep breath. Then, he frowned. A thick black sludge was seeping out from the windowsill. He called Marilyn over and asked what it was. Marilyn rubbed it between her fingers and sniffed it. She said she supposed that was where the smell was coming from. Harold didn't quite understand what happened next. He felt like someone else had picked up his arm and used it to smack his wife across the face. Marilyn put a hand to her cheek and backed away from him. Harold started to apologize, but he was interrupted by a commotion upstairs. A door slammed, someone screamed, and there was a sound like a gunshot. He reached the second floor, burst into one of the bedrooms, and demanded to know what was going on. Henry looked up from his comic book and said he had no idea what his dad was talking about. Harold looked around. Everything was perfectly normal. The noises were gone, and there was no sign as to where they'd come from. He shook his head and backed out of the room. He told himself he just needed to sleep. He wanted to go to his bedroom, but for some reason, he found himself heading up toward the third floor guest room instead. He sat in the chair by the window and started polishing his invisible gun. It was dark when Harold woke up. He didn't remember falling asleep, but he must have, because it had been the middle of the afternoon only a moment ago. He glanced out of the darkened window and froze. Instead of his reflection, a stocky man with a thick gray beard and heavy eyebrows stared back at him. Harold jumped out of his chair. There was a bang, and Harold turned around to see that the door had slammed shut. He pulled on the knob, but it wouldn't turn. He pounded on the door and screamed for someone to let him out. He could hear more shouts coming from downstairs. Harold threw himself against the door and tumbled into the hallway. There was another scream. Harold burst into the next room. 
Glenn was curled up in the fetal position. He ran to his father and Harold told him to stay close. Glenn clung to his hand as they made their way downstairs. Jerry and Henry were standing out on the second floor landing. Jerry told him there was something wrong with mommy. Harold gave Glenn's hand to Jerry. He told the boys to wait for him by the car. Jerry nodded and they started down the stairs. Harold took a deep breath and pushed on the door to the master bedroom. His wife was lying on her stomach in the bed. A red stain was spreading over the bed sheets. Harold rushed to her side and shook her, but she didn't move. Then he turned her over. As her face lifted up from the pillow, his heart stopped. This wasn't his wife. She was wearing Marilyn's pajamas, but she had the face of a woman a decade older. Suddenly, a voice called his name. Harold looked up and saw his wife standing at the door of the bathroom. He looked back at the bed. The older woman was gone. Harold grabbed Marilyn's hand and together they ran down the stairs. Marilyn paused at the front door. Harold told her to come on. She raised a hand and pointed at something in the living room. Harold looked up. His stomach lurched. Penny was hanging from a noose in the window. Her legs were twitching and she was gasping for air. He told Marilyn to go to the car. She took off and Harold ran to the dog. Harold held the struggling dog with one arm and frantically pulled at the knot around her neck with the other. He heard footsteps and glanced back at the hall behind him. The door to the basement was wide open, revealing a glowing red light coming from down the stairs. Harold could see a shadow slowly mounting the steps. He frantically pulled at the knot. The footsteps were coming closer. Harold's heart was pounding. He grabbed the curtain rod and wrenched it out of the wall. Harold glanced back at the dark figure in the basement. It was almost at the top of the stairs, and he could see a long, thin object in its hands. He hugged the dog to his chest and ran out to the waiting car. He didn't want to see what was coming for him. In 2012, the oldest of Kathy Lutz's three children, Daniel, spoke out for the first time about what had caused their family to flee from 112 Ocean Avenue 35 years before. Daniel corroborated his parents' stories about the house, the swarms of flies, the red room in the basement that terrified the family dog, and his stepfather's increasing volatility. Daniel's description of his stepfather as an aggressive tyrant matches with depictions of the home's previous owners. Butch DeFeo claimed his own father was an overbearing disciplinarian. He was reportedly often physically abusive, and it was Butch who usually bore the brunt of his rage. In his teenage years, Butch began copying the aggressive behaviors he saw in his father. By 17, he dropped out of high school and became a violent drug addict. Then, one day, he snapped. Butch DeFeo is a type of killer known as a family annihilator, Sadly, these murders are more common than we might think, and are common enough that there's even a word for them, familicide. Though the motives vary, most are connected to issues around the perpetrator's masculinity. According to Princeton professor Kate Mann, these killers often feel a deep shame around what they perceive to be their failings as men. 
but rather than hide themselves, they choose to eliminate those they feel are judging them. Whether you believe Lutz's story or not, one thing is clear. For nine years, the suppressed emotions present in the DeFeo household permeated the walls of the home, poisoning it with rage. When investigating the house for the first time, Lorraine Warren reported feeling a sensation so intense and ominous, she could hardly continue walking up the staircase. She described it as a force of water against her chest, almost like a waterfall. There's reason to believe that what Lorraine felt that day were those years of contained shame and fury, emotions that with time manifested themselves into a frenzy of violence. Perhaps George Lutz's militant personality awakened those dormant forces and set a series of paranormal phenomena into motion. Or maybe the answer is far more ordinary. There may not have been green slime seeping in from the keyholes or an ominous red glow emanating from the basement. Instead, there was something far more common at work, perhaps just as insidious, a lethal combination of aggression, entitlement, and deep shame. A poison that has contaminated plenty of homes outside of 112 Ocean Avenue. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe and Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Alexander Garland, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson.